podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Good boys and girls, two for the podcast on Monday, January the 7th, brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider, a virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things like BBC iPlayer, ITV Hub, all four, if you're that UK expat living in Spain, France, wherever you want, you still want access to your British TV. A Liberty Shield VPN is the way to go. Go to LibertyShield.com. Use the code Router50. It's Router50 to get your Liberty Shield VPN half price. Get using. Keep your data safe with the Internet's number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot. LibertyShield.com. Router50 at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find at Etsy, on Etsy, I should say, and use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks. Uh, lots happened over the weekend. There's lots of news. There's lots of football to go over. Let's start with the most exciting game of the weekend. Burnley nil, Watford nil in the Premier League. The only Premier League game of the weekend. Obviously, this one had been rescheduled after Burnley had to call it off and then Watford had to call it off. Or it might have been the other way around. I think Watford called it off the first time around and then Burnley called it off second time. But either way... They finally got to play on Saturday and it ended up in a very predictable nil-nil draw. Um, Not a whole lot to say. I I thought Burnley were the better team in this game. I thought they had the better opportunities, though Watford did work Nick Pope more often. Nick Pope made five saves. Ben Foster only had to make two. But I thought... There was some really good last-ditch defending from Watford, which you don't normally associate with them. I thought Hodgson predictably set them up in a 4-4-2 with Kayambe and Sissoko sat in front of the back four and then basically two central midfield-type players working out wide and keeping it very, very narrow and very, very tight. Burnley finally... Got to see Max Cornet back, and he played alongside Weghorst with Dwight McNeil left wing and Aaron Lennon right wing, which I thought was a strange decision from Sean Dyche. But when you look at the bench, there wasn't a whole lot of options. But I did think he could have probably started Jay Rodriguez up front and played Cornet out wide. When Rodriguez came on, I thought they looked a more dangerous team. But all things considered, a draw was probably the fair result on the day. Um, there was some good football played, I will say, by both teams. I thought Kamara played a couple of decent passes. One lovely ball in particular that he played in behind Tarkovsky for Josh King to run onto, and he pulled a good save out of uh, Nick Pope at the near post. But aside from that, there wasn't a whole lot else. As I say, a boring game, but you know it was what we expected. Um, those two teams now, obviously, are two of the bottom three. Burnley stay bottom, 13 points from 19 games played. They do have two games in hand on Newcastle and Watford, but the pressure is mounting now to start winning games. Only one win from their 19 games. 10 draws, eight defeats. It's not enough. They need to start winning some games. Uh, Coming up for Burnley, it is a bit of a difficult run. They get Manchester United at home tomorrow night. Then they play Liverpool at home on Sunday. Then it's Brighton away. Then Tottenham at home. And then Crystal Palace away. It's it's And then it's Chelsea at home. The next six are really difficult. Really, really difficult. There's no stretch of games that you look at and think that's favourable for them. 
and it probably is not time to really start worrying about Burnley. They do have Watford away and Newcastle at home in the last four games. And if they can keep it to a point where winning those games keep them up, well, then maybe you'd look at them in a favourable light. But for now, things don't look great. And Sean Dyche has got to be starting to feel feel a bit of concern about how this season has gone. Um, for Watford, they jump above Newcastle to third from bottom. Same amount of games played as the tune. They have West Ham away tomorrow night. Then it's Brighton at home. Villa away. Palace at home. United away. And Arsenal at home. So for them also a very difficult six-game run. And while they will play Burnley in their last four games, the rest of their last four are Palace away, Leicester at home and Chelsea away. Their end of the season is tougher than Burnley's. There's no easy run of games. And even nothing is easy when you're Watford or you're Burnley, but there's nothing favourable here where you're seeing you know three games in a row and think, right, there's two wins and a draw there. There is back-to-back home games against Leeds and Brentford that could be season-defining for them, but it's still a long way to go to that to get to those games on the 9th and 16th of April. And after that, it's tough. Before it, it's tough. You really would have to start feeling concern for those two teams at the bottom of the table. Uh, but that was the only Premier League game of the weekend. And it'll be nice to have games, Premier League games back this week. But I have to say, I did enjoy a weekend of FA Cup action. I thought it was good. There was some really good games. There was plenty of drama. Teams been made work really hard for victories that they maybe thought pre-game they would get quite easily. And a couple of big shocks. The first big shock, of course, being Friday night at Old Trafford. Manchester United won Middlesbrough won, Middlesbrough threw 8-7 on penalties. Jaden Sancho put United 1-0 up after 25 minutes. Matt Crooks equalised on 64. Controversy over the goal because there was a handball in the build-up. Chris Wilder came out and openly said, I thought the goal would be chalked off for the handball. But the rules are the rules. And according to the rules of the game, which, look, I'm not claiming they make sense at all. The rules allowed the goal. And when it came to the penalties, Borough held their nerve and United didn't. It's as simple as that. Uh, Anthony Alanga, the unfortunate player who missed for United. United had had a couple of scruffy penalties before that. Borough's were pretty much all spot on. United had dominated the game. I mean, there's no point in claiming that Borough deserved to get to full time at 1-1. They got to full time at 1-1 because United missed big, big chances. Sancho hit the crossbar. Cristiano Ronaldo missed a penalty. Uh, Bruno Fernandes missed one of the all-time great sitters of an open goal. But you do have to give Middlesbrough credit. They, They stuck to it. They kept going. They kept going. And when they got back on level terms, they really did fight to get themselves through to penalties. Once they got their goal, it was fairly clear what their ambition was. And they got there. And they got through. They knocked out United. It is going to be a trophyless season for Manchester United. They are out of the League Cup, out of the FA Cup. They have no chance of winning the Premier League. And if we're all being honest, they have no chance of winning the Champions League either. So this will be the fifth successive season without a trophy. Since Alex Ferguson left, this will be the seventh season out of nine without a trophy. And I think when we really take a look at, you know, the Ferguson era and the fact that they never went two seasons in a row without a trophy, and from when they won their first Premier League title to when he resigned, you do have to see how far the club has fallen. But, There's so many issues at this club, and I want to get into it maybe more tomorrow. It's not just about the team. It's about their whole approach. It's about the club top to bottom, from the ownership down, not from the bottom up. This is from the top down. The whole approach is skewed. 
And I just don't see an end to it for them. Because all we keep hearing is, you know, United want to buy Declan Rice. Well, okay, who's going to play next to him in midfield? And how are you going to use him? Is he going to be your holding midfielder? Because that's not his role. Is he going to go box to box? Great, but who's going to play next to him? Who's actually going to be the holding midfielder? Because McTominay is basically just a bargain bin Declan Rice, a box to box midfielder. Uh, Fred is a box to box midfielder. Matic is a holding midfielder, but Matic is well past his best. Pogba will leave, and he will leave as one of the great flops of the Premier League era. And, you know, what else are you going to do? Because you look at the defence. I mean, Varane hasn't been particularly impressive this season at all. They clearly have a need at right back. Uh, Juan Basaka has not worked. He goes down, I'm afraid, as a flop. Um, Maguire and Varane is not an ideal partnership because Maguire can't play in a high line and Varane isn't particularly comfortable in a deep block. So do you try and meet somewhere in the middle? Is that really getting the best out of either of them? Or is that just sort of patching it together? And then you've got question marks over Luke Shaw, who obviously had a great season last year, but this season has been a shell of himself. You've got question marks in goal. And in attack, things don't look near as rosy as they should. The Greenwood situation is, I mean, to call it problematic would obviously be to downplay it hugely. Sancho has looked better in recent weeks. He's starting to find a bit of confidence. He's clearly an exceptional footballer, but they don't play a style of football that suits Jaden Sancho. They don't have players around him that really get the best out of him. Bruno Fernandes is obviously a tremendous player, one of the best in the league, but at the same time, he is stalling on a contract extension. And do you want to give him a contract extension? I mean, you probably do, but how much are you going to be willing to bow to what he wants? Uh, Rashford has obviously had a very disappointing season and clearly stalled in the development of his career. And you don't have a number nine worthy of the name. You know, Edison Cavani is 35, Cristiano's 37, and remains both arsonist and fireman. And then, you know, Martial's gone on loan, and what else do you have, really? So there's quite a lot needed at United, and it's not going to happen over one summer. There's a new manager needed. There's a new approach needed. And like I say, I'll get into it more later in the week, but there's a lot of problems there. For now, huge credit to Borough, huge credit to Chris Wilder. What a job he has done since taking over there. Absolutely outstanding. And he can only be delighted with that result. What a tremendous outcome for Middlesbrough, who were massive underdogs going into that game, despite the fact that United haven't been particularly good this season. They're still a Premier League club. They're still fourth in the division. And Borough, while they've been hugely improved under Chris Wilder, they're still seventh in the championship. Now, it's a huge turnaround from, you know, the 15th place they were not all that long ago. Um, when Wilder himself took over, they played 17 games and they were sitting in 14th. They drew the first game under him, lost the second. And then it's been very, very good. Only one defeat since. Uh, they may, yeah, they're in seventh in the division. Um, but one defeat, two, sorry, two defeats under him as opposed to the seven defeats they'd had in the 16 prior games under Neil Warnock, who, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, if you appoint Neil Warnock, you're asking for mediocrity. It's what, what the man delivers. Um, on we go then. Kidderminster won West Ham United 2. This was a heartbreaker. Alex Perry put Kidderminster 1 up after 19 minutes, and they held out, and they held out, and they held out. And in the 91st minute, Declan Rice found himself in the box, beat his man and finished in emphatic fashion to send it to extra time. And you just hoped the kid minister could hold out and get it to penalties. And they held out and they held out. And in the 121st minute, Jared Bowen popped up on the goal line to tap home and, um, and knock out kid minister who had given absolutely everything. Now, 
again, you would say, look, West Ham were the better team. But in this situation, Kidderminster d- deserved to win the game. Like, the gulf between the two teams, is a team from the sixth tier of English football against a team who are currently fifth in the Premier League. And they held that lead for 72 minutes. They were three minutes away from the biggest result in club history. You have to feel for them. But, look, they can be super proud of of their cup run. To to get this far in the cup to begin with, hugely impressive. And to push a very good Premier League team as hard as they did is massive respect to them. Absolutely massive respect. And to West Ham as well, because, look, you know, they could have thought this is one of those days. Nothing's going right for us. They'd had a goal disallowed. They'd worked the goalkeeper a bunch of times. They'd hit the woodwork a couple of times. They really did bang on the door and they just couldn't get there. But in the end, they persevered and through they go. Moyes will be very, very happy. And uh, look, Kidderminster, as I say, did themselves proud. There's no shame in going out 2-1 to a good Premier League team. No shame at all. Uh, another team who did themselves proud were Plymouth Argyle. They lost 2-1 at Stamford Bridge, but they went one up through Gillespie after eight minutes. Aspilicueta equalised after 41, after a really nice move down Chelsea's right. And Plymouth, as with, with Kidderminster, they held out. And Chelsea had 41 shots in this game. Marcus Alonso didn't score the second goal to the 106th minute. They forced this game to extra time. They made Chelsea work so, so hard for this. And they almost sent it, almost sent it to penalties themselves. They were given a penalty late on, a chance to equalise in the 118th minute after Malang Sar made a silly mistake. But Ryan Hardy stepped up and it's a weak penalty. It's a very, very weak penalty and Kepa makes the save with ease. Really disappointing for Plymouth, who had given so much. And it'll be devastating for Hardy. But he should be very proud of the work that him and his team did to get to this point um, where, you know, they were one kick away from penalties against the team third in the Premier League. Um, So Chelsea threw. Manchester City also threw. They went 1-0 down to Fulham. Fabio Carvalho tapped home after a really good move. This goal should be looked at for his movement and City's defending, which is absolutely abysmal. But Ilke Gundogan made it 1-1 on 6. John Stones headed home on 13. And then a Riyad Mahrez double, one from the penalty spot. And then one following a decent move. Made it 4-1. City through very, very comfortably. Um, but they will have, I think, a few concerns about the lack of communication and defence between Stones and Ake on that first goal. Uh, Peterborough 2, Queen's Park Rangers 0. Joe Ward and Ricky J. Jones with the goals. I thought QPR absolutely smacked them around the place, but Peterborough, they had three shots. They scored from two of them. Um, The only two shots they had on target went in. They stuck to a game plan, and it worked really, really well. And that's a big win for them. They're having a really poor season at the foot of the championship whereas QPR are going really well and may well get promoted this season so you know it's um it's a big win for Peterborough Wolves nil Norwich City won Kenny McLean just on the brink of half time with a lovely goal from a set piece I thought Wolves were really disappointing I think Norwich fully deserved this win I thought it was one of the worst performances I've seen from Wolves all season. The new one I'd say was worse was the Brentford game in the league, the home game. Aside from that, this was such a flat performance by Wolves. Uh, Huddersfield won, Barnsley nil, Dwayne Holmes with the only goal on 19 minutes. Some questionable dance choices in the celebrations, but he was very, very happy with his goal, and Huddersfield would be very happy to move on to the next round. Everton 4, Brentford 1. Uh, the Frank Lampard era is underway. Yerry Mina scored on 31 from a set piece, because how else would he score? 
Richarlison made it two on 48. Mason, Ho- oh, sorry, Ivan Tony made it 2-1 on 54 with a penalty before Mason Holgate made it three and then Andros Townsend in stoppage time to make it 4-1. A comfortable win for Everton. Brentford were really, really poor in this game. Uh, Lampard set his team up in a 3-4-3 and it was interesting to see. It wasn't particularly fluid. Uh, they didn't create much in the way of open play opportunities. But they were ruthless from their set pieces. And they had some luck and some help from David Rea, who made his return from long-term injury. Uh, appears to have shrunk. He looked really small. I don't remember him looking as small. Uh, but he did not have a good game. And I think you could you could lay the blame at him for at least one and maybe two of the goals. But... Everton won't care. Lampard won't care. They are through <clears throat> to the next round. Uh, Stoke to Wigan nil. Josh Madja and Jacob Brown with the goals for Stoke. Madja on his debut following his arrival from Bordeaux or Toulouse. I think I think Bordeaux. I hope Bordeaux. Either way, Josh Madja is a really good player. Uh, I liked him at Sunderland. I liked him on loan at Fulham last season. And I think he will prove to be a very good addition for Stoke City. Uh, I think he'll get them plenty of goals as long as he's there. Southampton 2, Coventry 1. Coventry went one up through Victor Victor Gjorkas on 22 minutes. Really well taken goal by a player who's been in great form. Stuart Armstrong scored, but it's probably the goal of the weekend on 63 to equalise. An absolute perler of a right-footed shot. From the inside right channel, that just swerved and bent its way towards the top corner. Keeper had no chance. Kyle Walker-Peters with the winner in the 112th minute. Coventry just ran out of steam. Their legs were gone by extra time. They, they had nothing left to give. They'd given a really good account of themselves, but in extra time they were shattered. And Southampton go through, and uh, probably deservedly so, over the balance of play. Crystal Palace 2, Hartlepool 0. The Michael Elise show for the first 25 minutes. His free kick was knocked home by Mark Wehi, and then he made it to himself on 22 minutes. That kid is so, so special. Palace were really good in this game, but credit to Hartlepool. They fought and they tried and they gave everything they had. They just didn't have the quality to deal with a good Premier League side. And um, look, this, this game was about bigger things. I would urge you to go and check out some of the stuff Crystal Palace have done for Hartlepool, paying for the fans' coaches and contributing massively in promoting a GoFundMe page for the Hartlepool manager's wife, who has a type of brain tumor that's uh, inoperable. And she's on this medication that's, you know, keeping her alive, keeping the tumor at bay. But it's very, very expensive and they need financial help and this was this was a way that palace were able to help by making a donation themselves and also pushing the link and, and making people aware of it and i think they've raised somewhere in the region about seventy thousand of what i think is a target of one hundred and twenty thousand to cover two years of medication so yeah credit to crystal palace they really are one of the model football clubs in the premier league uh, Cambridge nil, Luton three. Very, very comfortable for Luton. Reese Burke, Carlos Mendes Gomez, and Admiral Musquay, who's got the, one of the best names in football, putting them through. Uh, Cambridge, it's a bizarre stadium. Oh, that's all I can say. It's a bizarre looking stadium. Um, Tottenham three, Brighton one was the late game on Saturday. Harry Kane. On 13 with a lovely finish, a really a really good goal from Harry Kane. Solly March own goal on 24. He deflected Emerson's cross over the keeper and into the net. East Basuma made it 2-1 on 63, but Kane slid home. Youngman Sons attempted shot that was half blocked. It may well have been going in anyway on 66 to make it 3-1. Spurs through. Basuma comes out of the game with a lot of credit. He was probably the best player on the pitch. But it was all for nothing because Brighton are out. 
Uh, into Sunday then, Liverpool 3, Cardiff 1. Very comfortable for Liverpool. I've talked more about this in the Daily Red podcast, which you'll find on Anfield Index. Uh, Jota, Minamino and Harvey Elliott on his return with the goals. The bigger thing for Liverpool is is Elliott coming back, Thiago coming back and, and Ruben, uh, Ruben Diaz. <laughs> Luis Diaz getting his debut. Uh, so all of them being integrated back into the squad. Obviously, Mane to come back, Salah to come back. Liverpool are in good shape. They really are. Credit to Cardiff. They worked very hard. They defended well for the first half. They defended in large, large numbers. But Liverpool had 80% of the ball, 19 shots, five on target. Cardiff had three shots, two on target. Ruben Caldwell got their goal. It was a well-worked goal that was largely down to James Milner being 86 years of age and not having any sort of reaction speed at all. At all. Uh, but Liverpool threw quite comfortably. Another big shock on Sunday then was Nottingham Forest 4, Leicester City 1. Zinker Nagel on 23, Brennan Johnson on 24. A disastrous 90 seconds for Leicester. A brilliant 90 seconds for Forest. Joe Worrell on 32 minutes. And a little word on Joe Worrell who broke his ribs three weeks ago, was told he'd be out for six weeks, came back to play this game and was absolutely outstanding. A tremendous performance from the Forest captain. Um, Ian Acho made it 3-1 just before the break. Leicester did not deserve a goal. They had been abysmal. Forest weren't even brilliant. Like Forest weren't even playing at their best level, but Leicester were just appalling. Uh, but Jed Spence made it 4-1 on 61 minutes to wrap things up and send Forrest through and dump Leicester out. And after the game, Brendan Rodgers did what Brendan Rodgers does and made some very arrogant statements and in typical Brendan fashion threw others under the bus rather than accept any blame himself. We had a really good second half. But this is why we are not top players. They can't sustain it. Well, hang on a second now. We had a really good second half. Forrest won the second half 1-0. So that's what Brendan is calling a really good second half. But this is why we are not top players. They can't sustain it. Forrest scored after 16 minutes of the second half. So how long did you think you were good for? A lot of players have to improve and prove they are worthy of being here. Some players may have achieved everything they can here. It's something we have to look at. Well, I think there is something that the board at Leicester City will look at, and that is the removal of Brendan Rodgers as their manager. If we take a look at Leicester's season, um, you can see it has not gone well. They're 10th in the Premier League, level on points with Villa, who are 11th, and only one ahead of Southampton, who are 12th. Um, They are out of the FA Cup in the fourth round. They went out of the League Cup in the quarterfinals to Liverpool's under-16 team. And they got dumped out of what was quite a favourable Europa League group. Uh, yes, it included Napoli, but Legia Warsaw and Spartak Moscow, you can't beat them. They're not very good, either of them. And yet you scraped through into the Europa Conference League, where you'll play Randers next. So that at least is a favourable draw. But your manager, who's one of the most incredibly arrogant people in the game, says he doesn't know anything about the competition. He doesn't know what it is. Well, let me tell you, Brendan, it is the competition in which you will next embarrass yourself. Because your record in European football is pathetic. Absolutely pathetic. And we could beat the drum about, you know... Well, they finished fifth last year. But why did they finish fifth? They finished fifth because they bottled top four. Same thing the season before. Yes, they did win an FA Cup this year or last year. And now they're going out of the fourth round this season. Uh, In the summer, they did what they don't normally do. They spent heavily and they did not sell anybody. And I know people will say, look, it's only 70 or 80 million for, for Pats and Daka. Bubakar Samari and Yannick Vestergaard 
as well as probably decent enough wages for Ryan Bertrand and the signing of Lewis Brunt from Aston Villa and a couple of other under-23 players they brought in. But it's all relative to who the club are and the size of the club. For a club like Leicester to have a, a net spend of somewhere in the region of 70 million is substantial. You know, I mean, look at the players that left them in the summer. Wes Morgan retired. Christian Fuchs left on a free. Matty James left on a free. Rashid Gazelle, I think they got a million and a half for him. But that was to cover, that all went to him to cover the wages that they owed him. Um, they released Philippe Bankovic under Rogers' request. They also brought in Adam Luckman. They're paying a, a hefty loan fee and all of his wages. So, all things considered, they've spent a lot of money to back Brendan Rodgers. And they didn't sell anybody. And we know that with Leicester, there's generally one big sale every year. Last year, it was Ben Chilwell. That's the one they sold to bring in a large chunk of money. The year before, it was Harry Maguire. They sold him. They reinvested the money in the squad. The year before that, it was Riyad Mahrez. The year before Mahrez, it was Danny Drinkwater. The year before Drinkwater, it was N'Golo Kante. This is what they do. They make one big sale every single summer, and they reinvest that money, and then they top it up with, you know, whatever it is they have to top it up with. This past season, they didn't. They had an obvious sale, Yuri Tielemans, and they decided not to sell him. And now they're in a situation where we go into a summer where Tielemans is not going to sign a new contract, and he's out of contract in 2023. So he'll have 12 months left this summer, which means his value will be down from where it was last summer. He's also not having a particularly good season, so teams will be less inclined to go and spend big on him. Now, he had a dreadful performance at the weekend. But Brendan Rodgers saying these things is just is incredibly arrogant. This is what he does. He throws people under the bus. He has not one redeeming quality. Not one single rede redeeming quality. You can imagine that if he does cling to his job this summer, he will probably change some of his backroom staff because he'll blame them. Uh, he'll blame the players. He'll blame COVID. He'll blame injuries. He'll blame absolutely everything except himself. The fact of the matter is they are where they are because of him. Uh, they've choked twice when top four was there for the taking. They have been appalling in Europe under his watch. And now they're 10th in the league. And unless they win the Europa Conference League, which, again, he has already diminished himself with his words, none of it matters. And let's be fair, they're not going to win the Europa Conference League. Like, they're just not going to win the Europa Conference League. There are better teams in the competition than them. Uh, if we look through, I would back Roma to beat them. I'd probably back Wren to beat them. I think Marseille would beat them. PSV Eindhoven, maybe. Celtic could give them a good game with the way they're playing. Actually, on Celtic, I have been informed by Aussies, it's Ange Postacoglu, not Angie. Well, he's Angie this side of the world, but I'll go with Ange. That's what I've been told, so that's what we're going to go with. Ange Postacoglu, another great win for Celtic at the weekend, by the way. And, uh, yeah, so Leicester out of the FA Cup. Massive credit to, Not to Nottingham Forest. And Steve Cooper. I mean, what a job that guy's done. What a job that guy's done in the FA Cup, in, in his time at Nottingham Forest. Took over a team that were bottom of the league and has turned them into one of the best teams in the championship. They had a bit of a funky run over Christmas. Uh, losing back-to-back -back games to Middlesbrough and Huddersfield. And then the game against Barnsley was called off. And they did lose to Cardiff in the last game, but that was after a run where they only lost one of 17. 
where they'd lost six of the first seven. So, yeah, huge, huge credit to Steve Cooper. And um, they're still in with a big, big chance of, of a playoff spot and potentially a spot in the Premier League. They're two points off West Brom. They sit eighth, Borough one spot ahead of them, West Brom in sixth. Then Huddersfield, who they could catch. Yeah, they've got a really, really good chance of getting themselves into the playoffs because Steve Cooper has done a brilliant job, as he did at Swansea. And it it is always going to be funny to me that Swansea fans were happy when he left. Well, you're 16th and he's 8th. And when he took over, you were well ahead of him. But he has massively, massively outperformed you uh, in the last 22 games or 21 games since he took over. So, you know. And there were Forest fans that didn't want him, which is even more ridiculous. You were bottom of the league with one point and you were making demands on who your manager should be. Uh, Yeah, good times, good times. Uh, Final game of the weekend, another big, big shock. Bournemouth nil. Boreham Wood won. Bournemouth, who are third in the championship, out at the hands of non-league Boreham Wood. Mark Ricketts, who I think is 37, with the only goal of the game on 38 minutes. A nice finish from the edge of the box after good work by Boreham in the build-up. Uh, Bournemouth's defence was awful. Nat Phillips had a shocker of a debut. Now, Again, you can look at the, the stats of the game and Bournemouth had 82% of the ball, did 18 shots, but only two on target. Only two on target. Um, shocking from Bournemouth. Absolutely shocking. Scott Parker wearing two coats again. I mean, will, will the guy ever learn? You don't need to wear two coats. There's no need for it at all. Just get one coat with like some lining in it and you'll be fine. Uh, so that's it. That's the FA Cup. In the fifth round, we will get Everton at home to Boreham Wood. So that's a big, big draw for Boreham. Uh, Palace at home to Stoke. Forest at home to Huddersfield. Peterborough at home to Manchester City. So they'll be thrilled about that one. Middlesbrough at home to Tottenham. Liverpool at home to Norwich. Luton at home to Chelsea. And Southampton at home to West Ham. Those games will be played on the weekend of the 1st and 2nd of March. Uh, the draw was done by Andy Cole, or Andrew, I think as he now likes to be called. He'll always be Andy Cole. Always be Andy Cole. Uh, also at the weekend, then we had the AFCON final, in which Senegal beat Egypt 4-2 on penalties after a 0-0 draw. Sadio Mane missed a penalty in the 7th minute, but it was him who scored the decisive penalty in the shootout to give Senegal their first ever AFCON title and break the hearts of Mo Salah and Egypt. Um, Yeah, a little conflicted on this one over the weekend, but I think Mane probably needed it more. Um, It does also settle some debates about, you know, where you would put, uh, you know, Salah versus Hazard. You'd put Salah one, Hazard three, and Mane two. That's where you'd put them, and that's where we leave it. Congrats to Senegal. Huge win. Huge, huge win, and deserving. They were the best team across the board of the competition. They got better as the competition went along. They deserved to win the final. They were the better team. They were the team intent on winning the game, whereas it's pretty clear Egypt were hoping to get to penalties um, or, you know, to sneak sneak a 1-0. Very much taking the Portuguese approach from 2016 or the Greek approach from 04, that idea of, you know, strength and unity and hoping Salah could produce something. Uh, Obviously, some people wanting to disparage Salah and say he didn't have a good competition. Well, Egypt scored four goals. He got two of them and created the other. So 75% of their goals came from him. I would say he had a fairly good tournament as his team got to the final. Um, But Mane, absolutely huge, huge uh, testicular fortitude, I think, to step up, having missed the penalty to take the fifth one uh, under all that pressure and score was massive. So credit to him, and I look forward to having both him and Mo Salah back at Liverpool 
in the coming days. We'll take a break now. And uh, when we come back, we've got the news and the gossip. Seeing a few. Right, welcome back. So, uh, just one last thing on the AFCON. A quote I've just seen from JJ Akacha on Sadio Mane taking the penalty. In Africa, we know how the fans are. He risked his life, he risked his family and even his home. But that's what he's made for. Magnificent stuff. Uh, the AFCON, I think, overall was a success. But it's in part because of how crazy it is. What a wonderful tournament. Um, and also, it's time for us all to cancel Lord Alan Sugar, who is just a disgusting human being. Uh, he sent out a tweet over the weekend, uh, for the final, I think it was, uh, of the Senegal team saying, uh, oh, I, I thought I knew these guys from the beaches in Marbella, which is just disgusting, absolutely disgusting, but not at all surprising. And uh, not even the worst take I saw this weekend, but it is it is disgusting. And he is a terrible human being. So, you know, by all means, feel free to tweet him a bit of abuse. Uh, right. What else do we have then? We have more men not knowing how to behave themselves at Ajax. Mark Overmars has stepped down as the director of football, having been found to have been sending inappropriate text message text messages to a multitude of women uh, overmars says he did not know that what he did was was out of line he did not know it was out of order i mean i i don't know who needs to tell you better i really don't know who needs to tell you better you're 50 odd years of age you should know better by now um yeah, cross-border messages towards several female colleagues at the club. Way, way out of line. Way, way out of line. And, um, yeah, it is It is what it is. Mark Overmars out. And uh, his football career or his career as a football executive, almost certainly over. Uh, one whose career is not over and is very much on the up is Dan Ashworth. He has resigned his position at Newcastle, at Brighton and Hove Albion and is set to join Newcastle United. Uh, Brighton have released a statement that says Dan Ashworth has stepped down from his position as technical director to take a similar role at another Premier League club. Former Everton and Rangers player and Scotland international David Weir becomes the club's acting technical director with immediate effect, having recently been promoted to assistant technical director. In line with his contractual terms, Ashford will now begin a period of gardening leave, after which will be able, he will be able to take up a new position elsewhere. He will continue to report to Deputy Chairman and Chief Exec Executive Paul Barber for any duties required during his notice period. But as is standard procedure with such occurrences. He will not be expected to attend the club's premises or matches after his handover is completed later this week. Paul commented, we are sorry to learn of Dan's decision. He's been an important part of the club's senior management since joining us from the FA and he's made a significant contribution to our progress in the Premier League and Women's Super League. On a personal level, I would be sad to see Dan leave as we developed a close day-to-day -day working relationship Dan's been an excellent colleague and has been a good, good friend as well. I wish Dan and his family well for the future. However, as is the case with all top quality people in an industry, we are always conscious of the risk of losing key staff to a rival. With that in mind, we will always put in place contingencies and succession plans that are designed to minimise the, the impact on our club. As such, our assistant technical director, David Weir, will now step up and assume the role of acting technical director he is someone with an excellent knowledge of the club and our club's culture from working side by side with Dan. As previously, we will conduct a search process of a search process for the role of technical director, as it is only right to do so. We anticipate a number of high-caliber applicants, but we also fully expect and hope David will be a candidate in this process. Chairman Tony Bloom added. 
We are extremely disappointed that Dan will no longer be our technical director. He leaves a significant legacy in place, and for that we are greatly appreciative. Dan's done excellent work here and outstanding job and helped build on the progress the club had already made across all of our technical areas. I wish Dan and his family well for the future. I mean, you can understand why he's taking it. I'd imagine the bag of money is huge and the opportunity, the, the potential of Newcastle outweighs the potential of Brighton. He had done an excellent job with West Brom. He'd done an excellent job with the FA. He is very, very good at what he does. He's one of the best in the business. And it's not a surprise that Newcastle went and got him. I will be interested to see what Brighton do. But what I will say is they're one of the best-run clubs in the league. Their recruitment process is incredibly smart and will function without him. I think they will conduct a big search. I don't think David Weir will get the position, but if he does, I think it's a sign that they couldn't get who they want, personally. Um, I, I generally suggest this guy for lots of roles, but Stuart Weber would make a ton of sense. He's used to working in that kind of size of club. And I think with the advantages Brighton have with their analytics department, I think he'd do a great job. So if I was Brighton, that's the first phone call I would be making. Um, but yeah, Newcastle finally getting the director of football. And my assumption is that he will be on gardening leave until the summer. And then he will take over, which isn't ideal for Newcastle because they could have done with him now. But, I mean, there's nothing really stopping him working for them remotely, immediately, if he is working from home. So, you know, away with him. Let him at it. Um, UK and Republic of Ireland FAs have abandoned their World Cup 2030 bid to focus on Euro 2028. So, England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland are putting in a joint bid to host Euro 2028. Now, as things stand, that is to be a, a tournament of 24 teams, which means that it's near impossible for all five to get automatic berths into the tournament. So you could have a situation where a host nation is not part of the competition, which obviously would not be good. Now, there's a couple of issues with this. Number one, Northern Ireland don't have a stadium that is fit for purpose. The normal mandate is that each stadium has to be a minimum of 30,000 capacity. The only 30,000 capacity stadium in Northern Ireland is Caseman Park, which is a GAA stadium, which is in no way fit to hold international football. Northern Ireland's own ground is Windsor Park and it is too small and it has recently been remodeled and upgraded massively from what it was but it is not big enough and unlikely to be extended for this competition. The other major stadium in Northern Ireland that you could look at would be Raven Hill where Ulster Rugby play but its capacity is under 20,000 and I don't imagine they're going to spend a lot of money uh, on a rugby stadium that will then revert to being a rugby stadium after the tournament. So Northern Ireland being involved is problematic from a stadium point of view. England being involved is problematic from a behaviour point of view. We saw what happened at the final of the last Euros. And personally, I don't think it would be right for Wembley to hold two finals in eight years. I think if it goes ahead, the finals should be held in England, uh, sorry, in Scotland, Wales or Ireland, uh, who can all put forward great stadiums. Wales have the Millennium, Ireland have Croke Park, which I think would be a great venue uh, for an international final. And obviously then you have in Scotland a number of great grounds, Celtic Park, Ibrox, Hamden and Edinburgh, uh, Murrayfield in Edinburgh, which is a great stadium. I think Scotland, Wales and Ireland, the Republic of Ireland should just go and put forward their own bid and not have England involved. You'd need eight stadiums. I think eight would be the, would be the right number. So you'd have the four I named in Scotland, Celtic Park, Ibrox, Hamden and Murrayfield. And yes, three of them are in Glasgow, but they're three sensationally good stadiums. 
So those three and Murrayfield would be perfect. Murrayfield's an incredible stadium. And if you watched any of the England, uh, the England Scotland rugby game there at the weekend, the atmosphere is phenomenal. It's built for sound. In Wales, you'd have the Millennium and you'd have Cardiff City Stadium, which would be ideal. You could also use the Liberty, though it is a bit smaller. I don't think it would hit the 30,000, but it, it, when it was built, it was built with the potential to be expanded. So you could expand it even temporarily. And then in Ireland, you've got the Aviva and Croke Park. And if you wanted to go beyond that, they do. there are a number of GAA stadiums that would need would need hefty work to convert them and upgrade them. So you've got Semple Stadium in Thurlis, that holds but 45,000. You've got Porky Cueve in Cork, that's 45,000. Uh, the Gaelic Grounds in Limerick is 44. Fitzgerald Stadium in Killarney is 38. Um, but all of them would need plenty of renovation. Now, Semple Stadium in Thurlis and Porky Cueve might not need as much. Porky Cueve, to my knowledge, got a big renovation a couple of years ago. So maybe you could use there if you wanted a third stadium in Ireland. But I think if you went with Croke Park and the Aviva and then the two in Wales that I mentioned, the four in Scotland, I think that would be the right balance. I really do think that would be a, a good balance. But if you wanted to just do, say, three in Scotland, three in Ireland, two in Wales, you could use Porky Cueve. And uh, I think it would be it would be absolutely fine. If a lot of it is standing, I think the seated capacity for it is 21,000. But you could put in temporary seating. You'd lose probably 8,000 seats, but you'd still have a capacity of about, or 8,000 capacity, you still have a capacity of about 37,000, which would be more than enough. And, um, you know, I, I think I think an Ireland, Scotland, Wales bid would make more sense than than one involving England again. Uh, and certainly, no no disrespect to Northern Ireland, you just don't have the stadiums for it. It's as simple as that. You've got Casement, which is 35. Um, after that, you've got Park Esler, which is 20,000. It's really not big enough. Really not big enough. Ravenhill is 18,000. Brewster Park is 18,000. Healy Park is 17,500. Yeah, there's no, there's no stadium that's big enough in Northern Ireland to even be considered, to be totally honest. There just isn't. Cason Park would be the only one. And actually, Windsor Park only holds 18,000. So even to to extend it, you're looking at a big extension. And it was only re-renovated like six years ago or something. And it, to me, doesn't look like it would be an easy job to extend it and make it a whole lot bigger. It's very tight there as well. So I just don't think the space is there. Anyway. Moving on, uh, Leeds have said that they are concerned by Patrick Bamford's lack of progress in his recovery from a foot injury sustained last month. Marcelo Bielsa says he cannot predict when the striker will return to the side as his injury hasn't improved. He hasn't played for 15 games now, how can I not worry? Of course, he did play. He came back, scored and got injured. Um and then has been out again since. So, yeah, I mean, not having Bielsa is, or not having Bamford is massive. Absolutely massive. He, he hasn't played since that Brentford game. And that was his first appearance in however long, months. Um, it's not good for, it's not good for Leeds. They, they have struggled to score goals this season. And without him, they're going to struggle even more. Uh, next manager to be sacked odds, no surprise, Brendan Rodgers is 
the number one choice at nine to two. You can get four to one in other places. No manager to leave comes in second. Then Sean Dyche, obviously bottom of the table. Uh, Eddie Howe, Newcastle. You don't know what those owners are going to be like. Roy Hodgson, it's Watford. They could sack him tomorrow. You just you can't predict. Uh, Antonio Conte, it is obviously managers to leave. He could walk at any point. Ralph Ranjek, he'd be the bet based on his contract being up at the end of the summer, uh, at the end of the, the season, rather, and potentially him walking away. And then Thomas Tuchel rounds out the top eight, and that's purely a Roman Abramovich thing, where Roman could sack him at a minute's notice. And that is basically all the news. So we will run through the gossip and see what is being said and where it's being said and how much of it is, as usual, complete and utter tripe. Um, Manchester City are interested in signing Uruguay centre-back Ronald Arejo, who has halted talks with Barcelona over a contract renewal. Manchester United are also preparing a summer bid for Arejo, whose Barcelona deal expires in 2023. United are ready to rival Bayern Munich and Barcelona in the race to sign Matthias De Ligt. Look, I don't think the Varane Maguire thing is going to work, but they did sign both of them, and unless they're going to drop their captain and and bin off 80 million, I, I just don't know why United continually get linked to centre-backs, because I don't see them buying another one. I don't see those owners being willing to fund another 60, 70, 80 million for a centre-back when they you know, they don't understand the game. And they'll just say, oh, well, hang on a second, we paid for Harry Maguire. Um, United are planning to overhaul their midfield with Declan Rice, Calvin Phillips and Amadou Hydera all on the extensive list of targets. Chelsea failed in their latest attempts to tie down Antonio Rudiger, despite offering him close to 200 grand a week amid interest from Real Madrid and Paris Saint-Germain. He is deluded if he thinks he's worth any more than that. Barcelona are interested in signing Cesar Azpilicueta. Of course they are. He's on a free. Um, Adana Demispor president Murat Sankek claims the club had agreed to sign Deli Ali on loan before he joined Everton on a permanent deal. It's very easy to say it after the fact. Uh, Liverpool and Manchester City could move for Bukayo Saka if Arsenal fail to qualify for next season's Champions League. I think this is Mark Ogden, and I think this was him attempting to have a bit of a dig at Arsenal more than having any kind of knowledge about what Liverpool or City want to do. Atletico Madrid remains seriously interested in Matty Cash, according to the spoofer. Uh, Leeds are still interested in signing Brendan Aronson, despite having two bids of up to 20 million rejected by Red Bull Salzburg in January. Those bids might be accepted in the summer, to be fair. They might just not have wanted to sell them in January. Liverpool are interested in Paolo Dybala. I bet they're not. I really do bet they're not. Real Madrid are looking at a deal to sign William Saliba from Arsenal. Again, I would guess no. Chicago Fire are close to signing Jordan Shakiri from Lyon. It has not gone well for him at Lyon, to be fair. Um, Palmeiras striker Endrick, having already been linked with both Barcelona and Real Madrid, says all young Brazilian players want to play for Barca. I'm fairly certain he said he wanted to play for Real Madrid. I'm almost certain he said he wanted to play for Real Madrid. Uh, Watford failed with an approach to sign Phil Jones in January. That's from Football Insider, so I would say tripe. Uh, Manchester City have joined West Ham and Brentford in showing interest in Sheffield Wednesday's 16-year-old English forward, Bailey Cadamartry. Surely he's Danny Cadamartry's son. He is. So, Danny Cadamartry works for Sheffield United, and his son is at Sheffield Wednesday. He's the under-18 coach at Sheffield United, and his son is in the Sheffield Wednesday under-18s. Does not speak well to um, to Sheffield United's academy. Really doesn't. Uh, Watford, Everton, and Brentford are keeping close 
tabs on Stephen Gunga, who's impressing with non-league side rising ballers. Fair play. Fair play. There's always plenty of good talent if you look hard enough. You will find that Liverpool will hold new talks with Fulham this month. Those talks have been held already. Football insider, not so inside. Uh, AC Milan are hoping to hijack. Too late for that. Manchester United are watching developments closely around Antonio Rudiger. Meh. Liverpool are monitoring Lahar of 17-year-old Andy Elselsi Logbo, who has been care- compared to Romelu Lukaku. I have to say he's not a player I'm entirely familiar with. Uh, 17-year-old centre-forward. Ivory Coast. Um, ancestry. Hmm. Yeah, I genuinely have no idea. Real Madrid have pulled out of the race to sign Erling Haaland, according to the star. Because the star, the Daily Star, definitely have the inside track on what Real Madrid are doing. Uh, they probably rang them and said, listen, you can run this story now. We're, we're out of the race. Manchester United and Chelsea are keen to sign Alexander Isak. Don't really see the point of him at Chelsea. United, yeah, I could, I could understand that, but not at Chelsea. Uh, Manchester United and Liverpool are both keeping tags, tabs on Serge Gnabry. He's had a contract in 2023. Uh, contract will get done. I think contract gets done between him and Bayern. Crystal Palace are interested in Joe Aribo. He's a good player. He's a good player. Uh, West Ham striker Michael Antonio has o- urged the club to boost, boost their attacking options and sign a backup striker in the summer. They should have been doing that in January. Pep Guardiola will sign a new contract, according to the Mirror, who say that Manchester City's players believe that he will. Right. Uh, midfielder Jack Wilshire has explained why he remains a free agent by revealing that Mikel Arteta doesn't want him to sign a contract at the club. So Arteta doesn't want him to sign a contract at Arsenal. Well, why don't you sign with somebody else then? That's what makes no sense about this. Like, I don't understand how Jack Wilshere is a free agent. How is there not a club out there who could do with Jack Wilshere? He can still play. Rumours surrounding a move to Arsenal for Paris Saint-Germain's Ginny Wijnaldum have been ramped up after he was left out of the 25-man squad for their upcoming match against Real Madrid. Was he? I'm not sure he was. AC Milan director Paolo Maldini says Zlatan Ibrahimovic will sign a new contract at the club. If Barcelona failed to sign Erling Haaland this summer, they will target Isak, Ajax's Anthony and Lissandra Martinez. So if they fail to sign one type of striker, they'll sign. they'll try to sign one of three other strikers or all three of the strikers who are all very different players. Uh, Football Insider again pushing the Phil Jones nonsense. Uh, Juventus are confident they can beat Spurs to the signing of Roma's Nicolo Zaniolo. He's <laughs> I, I'd be worried about signing him. With, with those knees, I'd be really, really worried about signing him. Uh, Manchester United and Chelsea are leading the race to sign Blackburn Rovers wonder kid Ashley Phillips. Both clubs have watched the England under-16 international this year. Um, What I would say to young Mr. Phillips is stay where you are. You're not going to get regular game time at either of those clubs. And the last super promising young centre-back that went from Blackburn to Manchester United has not had nearly the career that he should have had. So stay where you are. Um, West Ham and England midfielder Declan Rice will be the summer of a transfer... will be the subject of a summer transfer fight between Manchester United and Chelsea. We've all known that for a while. Barcelona hope to conclude the signings of Aspilicueta and Christian Eriksen... Andreas Christensen in the next couple of days. I don't see it happening that quickly, especially not on Christensen's side. Aspie, maybe. I think he could get away with it with the Chelsea fans. I don't think Christensen could. Lille president Olivier Letang says 22-year-old Sven Botman, who has been linked with a move to Newcastle, deserves to play for a club 
that can win the Champions League. And he is right. He does. He is really, really good. Um, representatives for West Ham, Manchester United and... Oh, sorry. Former West Ham, Manchester United and Manchester City striker Carlos Tevez are in talks with MLS side DC United. The 38-year-old has been a free agent since leaving Boca Juniors in July of last year. That's according to The Athletic. Uh, also, speaking of The Athletic, um, I assume everybody knows this now, but uh, Raphael Honigstein has uh, stepped down from The Athletic or taken a leave of, leave of absence to go and become the personal media mouthpiece of Ralph Ranick at Manchester United. So that's a an interesting development. Expect to see plenty of pro Ranick content in the Athletic in the coming weeks. Uh, Barcelona are lining up for Jules Conde. No, they're not. Don't be so silly. Manchester United have agreed a 12 million fee with Flamengo for Andreas Pereira. 12 million is a lot for him, considering you know how disappointing he's largely been. Former England striker Kevin Phillips says Liverpool could sign a long-term successor for Mo Salah in Bakayo Saka. Obviously, very different type of player, but yeah, I mean, for that that position, there's not going to be many better. Antonio Rudiger wants 225,000 to stay at Chelsea, but apparently the Blues are only offering 140,000. I think where Chelsea are offering is about right. I really do think that's about right. Uh, Leeds midfielder Calvin Phillips is pushing for a new contract. West Ham offered $55 million in the January transfer. I don't believe that they did. I think that was all just media nonsense. Uh, but Phillips is happy to stay at Leeds if he gets a new deal. I would imagine that new deal will include a buyout, though. RB Leipzig director Oliver Minslav Minslav <laughs> is confident 24-year-old French midfielder Christopher Nkunku will remain at the club despite interest from Liverpool and Arsenal. He he's off in the summer. He's far too good to to not be going somewhere to a top club and playing at a regularly high level. He is exceptional. Uh, France defender Levin Kurzawa was offered to Lille by PSG. Nobody cares. Uh, Liverpool are hoping to sign Gavi from Barcelona. I just don't see it. I just don't see it at all. Zlatan Ibrahimovic is set to sign for another season at AC Milan. The 40-year-old Sweden striker has been linked to move elsewhere. But Paolo Maldini is confident he will sign a new contract. He can still play, so why not? Why not? And that is the end of today's show, folks. That is everything. Hopefully we've touched on the lot. And if not, apologies. We'll get to it tomorrow. But yeah, lots of busy stuff the weekend. And I hope you had a good weekend. Hope you enjoyed the show. And I will see you all on, um, just before I finish, Nicholas Sewell will leave... We'll leave Bayern Munich in the summer to join Borussia Dortmund. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about that. He hasn't been very good the last couple of years. And uh, he's also very, very slow. And I think Dortmund would be better off if they could try and play a high line, considering, you know, Akanji is to the centre-back there. But Nicolas Sewell is still a good player. And if they can get him back to near his best, he'll, he'll turn out to be a good player for them. That's me. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.